Welcome to Latinx Like Me, a show where we embrace how beautifully diverse our community is while also celebrating the things that unite us. I'm your host, Emma Cárdenas, a first-generation Mexican-American born and raised in L.A. I had a great time connecting with my fellow bookworm, Daniela Ayuso. A native New Yorker with family roots in Ecuador and Puerto Rico, she opened my eyes to two cultures I hadn't really been exposed to before. Of course, food is a major topic. The ceviche comparison was quite unique. But Daniela also shares her touching experience visiting Ecuador with her grandmother and getting to see her family history up close. We talk about her finding her footing in the publishing industry and how diversity and inclusivity are being addressed. And don't worry, we have some solid book recommendations for you too. Great. So thanks so much for joining me today. I'm very excited and selfishly because when we talked earlier, um, you had told me that you were Ecuadorian and Puerto Rican and I was like, oh my God, this, this is literally the reason I launched this podcast. These are two cultures that I really don't know much about and I'm excited to not only talk to you, but I was really excited to do some research of my own. Um, Ecuador is more than just the the Galapagos, which are amazing, um, but I'm sure there's there's more to it. So um, I just want to quickly dive into your childhood. So you're first generation Ecuadorian, Puerto Rican American. Um, is that the right way to say it? Like, if you yeah, were- Ecuadorian, Puerto Rican. I mean, I just say like Ecuadorian, Puerto Rican. I um, I don't really say the American. I know I don't know why. I just have never like. <laughs> the American part but yeah I guess it would be like Ecuadorian Puerto Rican American but I mean it gets complicated I guess because like Puerto Rico is like a U.S. territory so um I just like a lot of people will like shorten it to like Ecuadorian which is like Ecuadorian (laughs) and Puerto Rican put together um but yeah I think I think Ecuadorian Puerto Rican and like X the American probably would work the best It's so funny right now that you said it. If someone had asked me like, oh, what, you know, what are you or that like infamous question, I'd probably just say Mexican. I've never said Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. Is, yeah. I never thought of it until right now. I was like, yeah, you're right. We don't like add on the American, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were, so you were born in Brooklyn and you're definitely like a New York girl through and through, born and raised, but mm-hmm. raised predominantly in the Bronx, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was raised in a little part of the Bronx called Throg's Neck, which is uh, mainly inhabited by Italian Americans um, and also like Irish Americans. But when we first moved there, it was like really heavily Italian influenced, so much so that our next door neighbor, um, you know, it was a couple that had immigrated here from Italy in the 50s, and they were the actually only people to ever own the house. Um, so they had the house like all the way until, um, recently, uh, the wife passed away. So, um, it was, it's definitely, it was definitely like so interesting to live next door and to have like fresh figs just like given to us, like at the end of the season or just like tomato sauce. So yeah, that was kind of primarily, I guess, just to give you a little snapshot of, you know, what my neighborhood is like, my parents are still there. Um, as well as my siblings. So um, yeah, I mean, I go back every so often, um, but because of coronavirus, uh, not really. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that is definitely where I'm from. Um, and I've kind of uh, moved around 
Um, throughout the f uh, five boroughs, except Staten Island. So I just like to say the four boroughs. So uh, I, def I definitely have like a piece of me um, in every borough um, that I've lived in, which is pretty nice. Yeah, and um, it's interesting because I think people's assumptions off the bat is that the Bronx, and it must be full of like Dominicans, mm -hmm. which was my initial thought. So it's, it's interesting that this neighborhood where you um, grew up had a very different um, makeup or a different demographic. Um, I want to dive back in because I know you, um, you had said that it's your mom who's Ecuadorian and your dad who's Puerto Rican. What are some like Ecuadorian or Puerto Rican traditions or, or customs that were a part of your upbringing? So my family, I think, so I, I went to Ecuador when I was about 18, 19 um, for the first time ever set, like before I could even remember that I went. So I think I went when I was like three. And so it was a pretty far jump in between as to when I actually returned. And I had realized really how um, diverse the country actually is. And, you know, after going, just Googling and just research kind of commenced and I realized that it is actually the most biodiverse country um, mm -hmm. of its size. So it's pretty yeah. small, um, but you have kind of the coast, um, you know, all the way to the west and then you have the mountains, um, the Andes, and then you have the kind of flat plains um, and then you have the Amazon, which is all the way to the east. So I would say that every part has its different culture and whenever I google like Ecuadorian food some of it is similar to what my grandma and you know my mom had participated in when um, I was younger and some of it is just not you know it's just kind of like our own um, little traditions so I would definitely say like Christmas was is obviously a big thing um, something that my family has is like this uh, baby Jesus um, and I'm not religious anymore, but um, they have this baby Jesus that um, they pass around uh, in the family and then someone gets it for an entire year. I don't know um, if this is like just an Ecuadorian thing, um, but this is definitely something that I've noticed. Um, and my grandma is one of six, I want to say. So um, it definitely is very interesting to kind of like watch the dynamic, but you know, every birthday, you know, we get like a birthday meal and it's pretty similar, um, you know, th throughout it's kind of always like a salad, uh, you know, some type of pork. We do these like pork cubed and they're like fried for like hours and they're just like mm -hmm. sitting in this huge kind of, um, it looks kind of like a wok and it's What's just, called? um, yeah. she calls it like fritada, which is just like, fried right <laughs> um, but it's literally just like pork and cubes um and she puts it in there at, and so my grandma lives with um my two aunts as well so you know the it's just the three of them cooking um and that's one part of the meal and then another part is definitely like a salad like every single time i went over to my grandma's house there was always a salad involved and i just had never like really like wrapped my head around that this was normal <laughs> so um i don't know why like salad to me was just, just like such a strange um territory and then 
we had this hot, we have this hot sauce called ahi, and it's basically made with these special tomatoes um, that you can find in like some grocery stores. No one will ever tell me the recipe because it's just like one of those things you just learn um, and you kind of have to like sneak glances whenever they're making it, but conveniently they always make it before I get there. Um, yeah, so it's just like secret and, you know, I can put it on literally anything, like anything from like a bagel with cream cheese, I would put it on there to, you know, the pork I was talking about earlier. It just really is that good. Um, so I would say that is definitely something that is probably more consistent throughout, um, not even just my family, but throughout all Ecuadorian cultures. And then I would say the biggest thing um, is probably ceviche. That is probably like like more of a um tradition if it's like a bigger party mm -hmm. so if you're having like a you know just someone's birthday party or like you know just a bigger event where more than 10 people show up then ceviche is probably being made and my my family usually makes the shrimp version like mm -hmm. not the like fish and so very recently i had ceviche with just fish, no shrimp. And it was very interesting. I had never really experienced that. And um, I had noticed that also my family makes it more of like a tomato based than just like the typical lime um, base. Yeah, was, so yeah. I was going to ask, is it, I was going to ask because of where Ecuador is based, if it was more similar to um, uh, Peruvian ceviche, which is made with like, I think coconut milk or, or milk or, or something but mm -hmm. no it's, it's more of a tomato base you say yeah my family's recipe is with a tomato base which I actually was just given um the other week so I felt very proud of myself moving up in the world and I sent a picture to my grandma and she was like muy bien like you know like so good <laughs> uh, but um yeah I would definitely say it's more tomato based at least in the region where I am I have seen people who have gone to Ecuador and have like shown me pictures of their adventures I have seen more of the lime based um but yeah I would say those are some of the, the traditions really revolve around food or religion totally. um so what region is your family from more like the coastal or no they're actually from a little town it's not really that little but <laughs> It's about two hours south of Quito, which is the capital. It's called Ambato. So um, I've, they're from my grandma's house. When you walk up to the roof, you can just see like two volcanoes just like chilling in the distance, wow. um, which is like pretty epic, to be honest. And I didn't really realize how close they were actually to um, her house. But it's it's I would say it's the region almost like right before the Amazon. So um, that that's kind of where I would place it. But yeah, that's a little bit about the traditions. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, Ecuador is is a small country where I think you can like drive across the entire country in like eight hours or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, which is pretty. Just like thinking of America, that's such a massive country that you forget. You're like, oh, that's right. Like, not everything is this this huge. Um, but no, that's that's really interesting. And and yeah, I'm gonna have to look into ceviche I'm a big I just started making um Mexican ceviche for the first time I've always been terrified to make it I'm like it's okay I'd rather buy it like it's safe <laughs> I just didn't want to poison myself on accident but it turns out it's very easy to make the kind of ceviche that we make so but I'm is it I don't know I don't know much about Mexican ceviche what is it like um so it's it's the fish well you can make different kinds but the kind that I grew up eating is fish ceviche so it's um tilapia 
and you just cube it. And then, um, so you cube the tilapia and then you throw some onion in and then you squeeze a bunch of lime so it covers it and you leave it in the fridge for a few hours. So like the lime basically cooks the fish. Mm -hmm. And then um, when you're ready to serve it, you throw in some cilantro and tomato and that's it. Oh, and sometimes a little bit of jalapeno if you want, like chopped up jalapeno. Mm -hmm. And then that's it. And yeah, you just like toss it together and eat it with chips or a tostada. And then I, of course, douse every bite in um, Cholula. So, <laughs> but yeah, very simple, very easy. I love it. Like in the summer, it's perfect. When I don't want to mm -hmm. cook, I'll just literally walk to Whole Foods, buy like a filet of tilapia, put it in there. Like I'll do it in the morning and then by lunchtime, like it's ready. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. One thing I will say, um, Ecuadorians love their ceviche with popcorn. Um, that is something like super interesting. And every time I have it, I'm like, we have to pop popcorn. Like it's just like an in, in natural instinct in me. That's just like awakens. And it's like, okay, popcorn. Um, yeah, that was definitely something you can eat it with chips or, you know, whatever you want, but like in the, yeah, side? you just kind of put it on top and just uh -huh. kind of like munch while you're like kind of soup. Uh, I call it just like a cold soup. That to uh -huh. me is what it is. So just when you're like, you know, scooping it, you just kind of keep the popcorn in every bite. Um, yeah. It's really delicious. I, re I really recommend popcorn with any type of ceviche. Yeah. So um, you had mentioned that you went to Ecuador, I guess, you know, for the first time that you actually remember uh, when you were 18. What was that experience like? And what was it like compared to, to the States? Yeah. So I had, I went with my brother and I went with my grandmother and my aunt and I just cherished this experience so much. Um, it was, we went for three weeks in the summer, which um, Ecuador, because it's south, well, where we are is south of the equator, the seasons are switched. So um, it was they call it the eternal spring um, because like it just never really leaves the 60 to 70 um, temperature range, which is pretty I, nice. Um, I would love it, Ecuador. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was also very rainy. It was the rainy season. So um, it was definitely interesting. We um, have a house there. Uh, you know, it was just great to be able to kind of place the pictures from what I've seen when I was younger to, you know, actually walking into the gate and like, you know, finally starting to remember a little bit of what the house looked like. And, you know, for me, I had never been around so much, like, I mean, there were just like mountains and volcanoes and then there were like towns and cities and, um, you know, you could drive 20 minutes and you can be on the top you know, in, of a hill and just like see the whole city and then also turn around and like see a mountain or a volcano. Um, so it was just very interesting. I, I think the experience was definitely enhanced because I went with my grandmother and she knew the ways of the town. And, um, you know, it's very interesting because in Ecuador, you get your gas from a man who like comes around at like six o'clock in the morning with gas tanks. Oh. And he's, and he just like shouts like, I'm here. Um, and so you like go down, you pay like five, five dollars and you have like gas for like three months. So, um, you know, that was very interesting to see. And I think for me, my favorite part was having all the fruit that was there. Like, you know, they have a fruit called babaco, which is, um, 
I guess I would kind of classify it as like a guava papaya in that area. Um, but she would make this juice and it was, you know, so amazing. And I don't think you can find that fruit here. So definitely it was just like once in a lifetime that my grandmother was like making this fruit from the country where, you know, she's from. Um, and there were just so many little things like a taxi ride is like $2 and it'll like take you like all the way into town where I feel like the equivalent Uber here would probably be like 20 or $30. Um, <laughs> so that was definitely nice. And something else about Ecuador is that it does use American currency. So um, people are always shocked to hear that, um, but it actually made things very, very convenient. Um, and then when you like getting to, when you get into town, there was like this huge market in the middle of town um, and just everywhere there are just food stands of people, you know, selling pork or, you know, selling fish or selling bread or cheese. Um, and I think one of my favorite meals is definitely like in the morning when I would wake up and she would just have like this piece of bread, which is kind of like sweet bread. Um, and then in the middle, it's like this cheese. Um, I guess I would kind of compare it to halloumi cheese. I don't know if you mm -hmm. ever had halloumi cheese, but it's kind of like that. And it's like soaked in a brine um, and you would just melt the two together. And it kind of makes this kind of tart, uh, somewhat sour sandwich but then you like pair it with hot chocolate and it's like cocoa you know from Ecuador so it really can't get any better um so that's what I would wake up to you know like every single day um for three weeks and you know it's just little things like that we did go to this other town called Baños which is literally just translate to to baths bathrooms? because oh. yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> or just, yeah. I think of bathrooms which is interesting and something we can get into later but just like the little differences between words in different countries where like it means one thing in, in one country but yes tell me about baños <laughs> yeah it was I I just just remember I just associate like baths with baños because they have so many baths like public oh. baths and um you actually go and the volcanic water uh, which is freezing, comes down, they heat it up, and then they put it in this pool every day. So like, you know, they take out the water from the previous day, put in the water, and you just kind of sit there in the heat um, until your body can't take it anymore, which is about like 20 minutes. And then you go out and then you kind of um, just shower in the cold volcanic water. Um, and you just kind of like go back and forth because you can't stay in the pool too long. Um, and that to me, it was just like at night, like the part of the volcano was like lit up in lights. Um, and so we went there and that's what, I mean, that was the main reason why we went there. And so we just stayed in this like very nice, like cute little um, hostel. We woke up and we just like were able to see the volcano with the water coming down. Um, and there's so many photos. I just was so fascinated. Um, but that was definitely like a very nice, just like two, three days we were there. Um, and very interesting just to see, you know, in the middle, um, there was like a huge church uh, that was built, I believe in the 1800s, maybe 1820s. So for me, it just, it just, you know, was repeated, you know, how important religion, you know, is. Um, and every town, my uncle who was there as well, just kind of like giving us a little bit of a tour had kind of just emphasized to me that, you know, every town has a church like this, um, you know, built way back when. And it's still kind of like, you know, the, the best thing 
that's in that town. Um, and I love that town. I think there was something so special about it. I think it's definitely more of like a tourist location. My brother, who was um, younger than me, he's about six years younger than me. So I must have gone when I was like 20, actually, um, because like he was old enough. He was like 14 um, and he like zip lined like across um, to like another area. And it was pretty scary because we didn't know when he was coming back. But those were just kind of like the touristy things um, that we were able to do. Um, and I and I love Banyos. I, I think about it often. I just think about like waking up and just being able to like walk around a, t a town and, you know, um, that's not really something I could have done um, just like living in my grandma's house because she is kind of a little farther out um, from the main city center. Um, so that was Banos. And then we went back to Ambato and it was, you know, it was kind of just really nice to kind of see her in the house that her and my, and my grandfather, you know, had basically built and, um, you know, made their own. Um, and it just had seen that there were so many memories in there. You know, for me, it was just being able to see that and see how, you know, at home she felt and in place and she was able to move around comfortably um, mm -hmm. and like put a fire on and just kind of be able to sit there, um, you know, all really, really meant something to me. And I would yeah. love to go back. I think we'd always talked about going back, you know, like now that I'm a little bit older um, and my brother's older as well. I don't know if my sister's quite old enough to, to appreciate no internet for three weeks, but um, <laughs> yeah, that is definitely something that I would like to do in the next year or so, just like go back with her um, and kind of just live there maybe, you know, for longer than three months, who knows. Yeah, no, it sounds lovely. And, and there's a really nice feeling. And, you know, I don't know if kind of, it sounds like what you're describing, but it's really nice to be in, in kind of what feels like, like a homeland and, and just like really being surrounded and enveloped by this, this other culture that, you know, is, is a little bit of a part of you, but then to really just be immersed in it, like it kind of feels like a hug and you're like, huh, like you can kind of breathe and, and just enjoy it and, and take it all in and appreciate it because you've been given little, um, like little bits of it. And now like here it is a whole, a whole flood. And it's, it's a very, yeah, it's a very moving experience. You're like, Oh, like this is, this is nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think being able to see, like the house my grandma has and then we would go into town and see the house that my great grandmother had um and like you know right across the street that like all these memories were like flooding back to me like right across the street from her house um which is in the city center um you know with a store that they had and you know it's it's now closed down but um it was just so I felt like I was in like a fever dream of like, I've definitely been here before. And I know this place, it feels so familiar to me. Um, but it was just so amazing to be able to kind of see where the roots truly are. Um, so yeah. Yeah. What are some other, um, I guess, typical, I, what are some, um, or are there any Puerto Rican dishes that you um, were also raised with? Cause I know both your parents are from two different places and I, I'm, guessing and just from living in new york there is a bigger 
Puerto Rican community there. So I feel like that's maybe easier to to come about. I don't know if there's a, is there an Ecuadorian like community? Yeah, I would say in Queens, which is where my grandmother lives right now, particularly in like the Jackson Heights area. Okay. Um, that there are a lot of Ecuadorian people. Um, we're, over the last 10 years, we've kind of seen a little bit of a shift um, um, due to what seems to be gentrification. Um, so there has been a slight shift, but I would always think of Jackson Heights as more of like an Ecuadorian central oh, <laughs> um, than any other part of New York. So I had no idea. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Puerto Rican side, um, my great-grandmother um i was actually you know fortunate enough to uh, really get to know her when i was younger and i just remember she would i'm talking about my great-grandmother on my um father's side um she would always make me this soup uh i don't know if it's puerto rican or not but i don't know where she would have come up with the recipe if it weren't um and it was kind of this uh orange soup um and it had rice and it had chicken, and I, I'm guessing the base was tomato sauce. Uh, obviously, I was young enough, like, she she couldn't have taught me the recipe, um, but that was something that I ate almost every single day when I was there, and I actually had gone to school uh, pretty close to where she lived, so um, I would always go there after school um, or, you know, most days, and that was just what I had almost every single day. So to me, I mean, I still don't know what it's called. I don't know how to find it. I mean, I've tried to search like orange soup, but like nothing ever like really felt right. Um, (laughs) From, you know, like what the allrecipes.com would give me. Um, But that was definitely something that uh, I grew up with. Um, And, you know, my mom, she tried you know, just to kind of incorporate the the regular kind of like rice and beans um, type of deal. But I think because of kind of where we grew up, um, it, there was always like something like a chicken cutlet, which is like, I guess could be, you know, Puerto Rican as, as well. But um, you just being that like Italian American neighborhood, it's kind of hard, like not to kind of cross those lines. Yeah, um, totally. So I would definitely say that orange soup made such an impact in my life and I'm constantly chasing the like flavor of it and um the rice and beans part I think those those two and you know over time like I've had tostones more than I can even count and um she's made mojo which is you know kind of that garlic sauce that goes with what sorry what are tostones so they're the yellow banana the plantains no no they're the green banana (laughs) Okay. Yes, they're the green hard banana you find, the plantains at the supermarket. Um, the the maduros are the yellow ones, which I actually don't like, unpopular opinion. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, but they're green and then you um, kind of cut them up, uh, fry them in kind of a shallow fry, and then you take them out, you smash them with the plate or whatever kind of contraption you have. I've seen people with like a wood thing and they just kind of like smash it that way. And then um, you kind of dip it in water and then fry it back. And it just comes out the the most like crispy chip. Um, And it's so enjoyable, especially when I like slather it in this like garlic kind of acidic sauce um, that she makes. 
Um, and to me, I would just always request it. It is kind of a little bit of a labor of love, to be honest, you know, like having to like put yourself in the danger of like front of like burning yourself. <laughs> but <laughs> I would say it's definitely worth it for me every time she would make it. So um, that's a little bit more about the food. And then, um, you know, in New York, there are just so many takeout places, so many places where you can just get like a whole chicken and um, just like rotisserie chicken and rice and beans and a salad. And to me that, that was, you know, just cream of the crop, um, like top tier dinner. <laughs> but yeah, the, those were, I would say the tostones, the rice and beans and this orange soup. Um, if anyone on this podcast can tell me what it's called, <laughs> um, that'd be most, look it up. I know. most someone helpful. Has know. Someone has to know. We're going to find it. Yeah. I, we're, what, oh, man. I'm so curious now. Orange, it sounds tasty. I'm excited. So it was so it. delicious. And she made it in, um, she always had this, I really don't know what kind of material these pots are made out of, but like they're kind of the classic like rice pot. I don't know if it's like stainless steel or something, but um, you know, over time it kind of wears down and really uh, kind of gets to where you want it to be. And she would always make it in one of those. Is it so the blue I, and white pots? No, they're, they're kind of... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like everyone had like sometimes they're huge and they're silver I just don't know what material they're made out of and anytime mm. I talk to someone about this they're like what are you talking about like and I'm and I feel like sometimes when you know when I do meet someone who knows what who knows what I'm talking about they're like oh my god like yes um but now I've kind of converted to the rice cooker method um <laughs> because I can never find one of those pots I think they're kind of something that's passed down generationally so Mom, when you're listening to this, I would really like the pot when you're done with it. <laughs> put, it put it in the will. Yeah. It's so funny. I've, um, I'm like waiting for COVID to be over or managed because I'm just like dying to go to Mexico to shop for mm -hmm. a bunch of stuff. I'm like, I need decor and I need some like guayaveras because I've decided to just embrace that look with leggings. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I just, and maybe, you know, maybe next time you go to Ecuador or Puerto Rico, you can pick up a rice pot. I'm just like, get all the things. <laughs> I basically just want to go shopping. <laughs> for sure. That actually reminds me when I went to Ecuador, um, my grandma had, she's like, she's so amazing with the way she like bargains with people she'll like go up to something she'll like spot it and she'll be like two dollars and then you know like just she's just like trying to always get the best deal and so she actually got a really good deal on this poncho um that was like made out of alpaca um and i would say that is the most ecuadorian thing i own um nothing else would top this poncho but it's so beautiful and it's so and i just don't know where to wear it because i'm just like sometimes it looks a little bit much but um you know i just that is something that I would definitely go back to Ecuador for and just like get it as like a really luxurious gift for someone. If you're ever in Ecuador, definitely recommend just like a poncho. Um. I am ready. It's yes, I am ready to start exploring more of Latin America. Like I've only been to Mexico and only a couple of places in Mexico. So like I need to expand and and keep exploring and yeah the more i learn about you know these different cultures and stuff i'm like just fascinated and, and dying to go so i will be asking you for tips when i'm ready yes um but let's talk about books i'm so excited so that's actually how our paths crossed via the whole bookstagram community um which for people that don't know it's um it's like a <laughs> 
people on Instagram that love to talk about books and, you know, share photos of books and talk about what you're reading and, and all of that stuff. And it's nice to, you know, obviously, every, you know, like every brand publishers are also on, um, on Instagram and, and connect with that community. So it's, it's really cool. Um, so let's talk about how you got into the publishing industry. Cause I, it seems to be like a really competitive one and, and one that unless you're about, you know, unless you want to be a part of that industry, you're not really sure kind of like how it works or what that path is, but you started as an intern, um, at Penguin Random House. And then, you know, what happens with a lot of internships is there wasn't a position immediately. Um, so you went to go, you know, work, but then you got a call that there was a position available. So what, you know, once you were hired, um, at Penguin Random House, like what were you, what type of stuff were you, were you doing? Cause I know it was more on the corporate side, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my internship was, um, on the organic corporate side. So, um, I dealt with a lot of like social media stuff, you know, just kind of like learning the ropes there, learning the ropes of, you know, just penguinrandomhouse.com. And then, um, as you were saying, uh, I had gone back at the time I was living in Philly, I'd gone back to Philly. Um, and there really wasn't a place, um, for me at the moment. So, but then, you know, not even a month later, I had gotten a call. Um, and they said like, there was a temp position open that they'd like to interview me for once again on the corporate team. But this time I would be handling the advertising side, um, which is something completely new to me. I had known that like Facebook ads were a thing, but I had not really, um, explored that area. Um, so what I primarily did, I, I primarily, I, I assisted, um, the whole uh, paid advertising team. Um, and I did some analytics and insights work as well. And then um, I also, you know, as time progressed, uh, got to work on some really cool campaigns. You know, we worked on our first influencer campaign. Um, it, you know, like that was something that I helped out with and um, just was really eye-opening to me, just the world of influencers. And I had never really, I had known, you know, what they were, um, what they were, but um, I had never really kind of worked in that space. And after that, um, my original uh, manager on the organic side for my internship had expressed that she was looking to expand her team. So obviously I expressed my interest and that's what kind of led me back to the organic side. So I'd kind of taken what I had learned, um, you know, from the advertising side and still my knowledge from the organic side and kind of brought it to this new role, which was kind of a mixed bag of, um, from everything from like putting together PowerPoints to attending BookCon um, and Comic-Con to uh, helping out on social. Um, I was pretty much like a catch-all. And I think that was really great exposure to me. Um, I could pretty much raise my hand for any project and be involved, which was, I think is like the great benefit of like starting out um, in publishing kind of on a more junior level. But, you know, as the year progressed, I, I really wanted to learn what I wanted to focus on. And I really wanted to kind of figure out my next step because I, you know, I knew that this couldn't be forever, right? Like, you know, so then I had figured out that, you know, maybe social media would be the role for me. At the time, I was really helping out uh, Natasha, who runs the Penguin Random House Instagram. And 
um, I had noticed that Doubleday Books, which is an imprint in Penguin Random House, um, had an opening. So I had applied, I had reached out and, you know, one thing led to another and that's the position I'm currently in. Um, so I currently run all their social media programs and I also do some title marketing as well. So I have some really exciting books coming in 2021. But yeah, I think every day is faced with a new challenge. I think publishing in itself is something that had I had always kind of been drawn to. Um, I think most of the people in publishing do experience, you know, being an avid reader from very young. And this is not saying that, you know, you have to be an avid reader, but it was something, you know, that kind of just made sense for me. And I think um, I have found so much joy and so much benefit from reading that I kind of wanted my job um, and my career to reflect, you know, that if I was going to market anything, it would be something that I know can help benefit people's lives. That's kind of where I am now. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. And you started, you started at Double Day like a week before COVID, right? I <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I started um, at the um, very beginning of March and I was super excited, super nervous. Um, and then, you know, about a week, about, I would say about a week and a half into it, uh, I get an email that's like, you're going home. So pack up. Um, and I was just like, okay, uh, I get, you know, I, I don't really have a choice, but um, yeah, I think I still have really been able to get to learn, you know, more about my team, um, more about the publishing industry. And I think even, even more so um, because I, you know, when you're sitting, when, when you're in the office, right. And, you know, you think you have, you know, to get all this stuff done and, but then you have all these meetings on your calendar. And now I feel like the, all of the, like, you know, meetings that I attend just help me learn even more. And I think like more people even show up. So for me, it's like, really seeing that people really are invested. It's just, you know, can be a really hard time commitment when you're in the office. So um, that to me has been a real benefit of being able to kind of like see more people in my department. Um, and my team is, is pretty small now at Doubleday, um, you know, compared to other teams in the Knopf Doubleday publishing group. But that is something, you know, I am grateful for a smaller team. I think that has definitely benefited me. I, you know, it's really hard to try to get to know even 10 people, but, you know, I'm fortunate to, you know, really closely work with um, about five. So yeah, I think I make five. So no, actually I make six. So um, that's kind of where I am. I, I think I'm still learning. I, I don't, I've just kind of hit the about six month mark at the job, which is, literally insane to me that I've done this job almost fully in quarantine. And I, I mean, the way, you know, it's kind of looking, I may be still doing this job coming, you know, hitting the year mark. So mm -hmm. um, it's definitely been a learning curve, but this is something that I will never, ever forget. And I think in terms of my marketing mind, it definitely has kind of pushed me to think more outside the box. Um, and, you know, something that's really important to me is inclusivity, um, you know, whether that's in our titles, uh, you know, and the photos I take for social, and it just really is hard. 
because mm-hmm. it just is me in my apartment and like sometimes my self timer, but then like that never really works out either. So, um, yeah, I, I think it definitely has been a learning curve and a challenge, but I don't think I, you know, I can't imagine myself learning any other way now, now that I've been in this for about six months. It's, it's really interesting what you, um, just brought up because, so I also work in, um, in marketing and, and advertising and, you know, especially with, you know, the topic of diversity and inclusivity and, and being more responsible, you know, we do have that responsibility. And I know internally at my agency, I put something together that I was like, you know, I think we're pretty good about, you know, showing diverse people and, and whatnot um, in the content that we produce, but I think we can do a better job of it. And there is also some blind spots that I know I've had and, and other people like, for example, um, the um, like disabled community, like that's also, you know, something that we need more visibility into. And so I drafted something just internally again for the agency that was, um, you know, let's make sure it's, we're doing higher percentages of, of showing more inclusivity and like in just some guidelines for everyone who's creating content for our various clients. And, um, and it was, yeah, it was just something that, that I felt needed to be instead of it just being like understood, but I feel like it's something that needed to be said outwardly. And, and I think that helps hold people accountable. But when you throw COVID into the mix, like it's actually delaying some of it because, you know, our, our content studio, like it's not safe to have a lot of different people going in there. And so we have, you know, one or two people who happen to be white creating the content. So when you need hands or something like they're white because it's, it's just not safe. And so that's, you know, as a marketer, it's, you feel a little frustrated because you're like, I want to, you know, I want to showcase this, you know, diversity and and it's amazing, but at the same time, like it's not safe. It's not, and it's not fair to like, it's just not safe to put people in that situation. So I totally get um, what you're talking about where you're like, you know, inclusivity is, is important to you, but right now, like we're all kind of siloed. And, and I think that's something that um, maybe the public doesn't think about when they're like, well, you know, all I see are our white hands and, you know, in these photos, it's like, oh, you know, unfortunately, like there's a reason um, it's called a pandemic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I think for me, it's also about being as authentic as I can be. And if I were just to invite some friends over for a photo shoot and just, it just doesn't feel right. So I think I, I try my best to, you know, let our audience know that, hey, it's me. Um, you know, I am, you know, I'm the one creating content in my apartment. Um, you know, I think that level of transparency, you know, I hope has, uh, really helped kind of a shot, shine the light, shine the light. I, um, kind of brought, uh, to the spotlight, um, kind of that it, it is truly just me. And, um, it, it, I think, you know, in some ways it's helpful to be that transparent about the situation. I think there's just so much going on um, in the world um, and in our lives. And I feel like it can really be hard to 
kind of trying to process this information or not understand why a company is making a decision that they're making. Um, so if I can kind of help along in that process and kind of just make things a little bit more clear, then, you know, I think I, that's part of my job. And I think I, that's something that um, is also really important to me. So um, hopefully more to come in 2021. You know, I had a lot of plans <laughs> in the first week that I started. Um, I but know. yeah. It's um, so yeah, just talking about about diversity and in publishing, I know it's a big conversation um, right now. And it from what I've seen, like it does appear that, you know, the decision makers are really listening. And, you know, because as with any, you know, corporation and, and company, like there are different levels and and what really is needed for for change is for those like decision makers to also listen and and make change and um but it does appear that they are listening and there are some changes and, and discussions happening would you think is that like fair to say and i know you obviously don't speak for the entire publishing industry but like <laughs> your experience um how has you know have those conversations been been happening internally yeah i think what's really important to note is that from the minute i started double day like my opinion was always welcomed and if not like ex extremely encouraged um i think like that is something um that you know the management um you know that i work with specifically really does well so uh, when it came really to making you know more clear-cut decisions about inclusivity or kind of um especially with um, Black Lives Matter um, really rising up, you know, they, they really did take my lead in terms of, you know, maybe we shouldn't just be posting this book on social media right now, or, you know, like maybe we should just like take a break and kind of like watch, um, you know, what's going on instead of just kind of being a little tone deaf to the moment. And I, and I think that is something I don't think I would have ever pictured um, being a, kind of a valid um, opinion. Um, I think just based on, you know, horror stories that I've heard about uh, other people working in publishing or um, other people, uh, my other friends working in other in other industries being like, you know, I, I told them I, that, you know, this was my opinion and they <laughs> just kind of like shrugged me off. So um, I, I think before it's been, and, and this is also a, a separate conversation, but really you don't want to rock the boat as like mm -hmm. the you know, as the person of color or whatever, because it's speaking up makes you be um, labeled as like difficult or or aggressive or or whatnot. Whereas now, you know, it, and it's great to hear that that it's encouraged and that your opinion is is valid because it is. And I don't think you know for a long time we've been um, othered or labeled as as difficult. And you know, no, obviously that you can only be told that so many times before you stop sharing your opinion. So it's amazing to hear. Um, that your opinion is is valid and it, or not just valid, but that it's encouraged and and listened to. So that's that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it really is about the idea of um, getting over that you don't that you aren't psychologically safe. And what that means to me is that I can speak my mind freely uh, in a respectful way. Um, you know, have valid concerns um, and not fear that. I will be reprimanded either by upper management or, you know, so um, it did take me like a long time, especially as like a person of color in publishing. Um, and sometimes, you know, one of the only people of color in, in the room. Um, so 
I think for me, once I kind of realized how how welcoming they were and how they were like, no, like we we want to hear your suggestion here because like you're the one that is looking at social, you know, almost all day. So um, for me, it kind of proved that like, wow, I really know how to do my job. And like, you know, I really know what I'm doing here. Um, and I think that also kind of has a little bit of a borderline of imposter syndrome um, that I feel like, you know, a lot of people face, uh, especially when you are, um, you know, just starting out in your career. And sometimes like I don't have all the answers, right? Like I, I'm learning just in this business um, as everyone is, you know, every day. But I'm really thankful that I am, you know, able to kind of see, okay, uh, this is not the best move for us right now. Like, you know, let's push this off. Let's see where we are at, you know, in maybe two weeks and then kind of resurface the conversation. And, you know, I really have to give credit to my direct supervisor. She, she is definitely the one that will just call me and just be like, what do you think of this? Like, you know, like, should we act on this? Should we not? And for me, you know, the, that open line of communication and the open line of knowing that she's always kind of like listening, um, you know, is, is really helpful. And I, and I completely understand that that is not everyone's experience in publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am not oblivious to that fact, but you know, at the same time, I think it, if something is being done correctly, then I think we should really, you know, shine a light on that as well. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's important as well. Um, and I know, you know, with all this talk of, of changes and, you know, companies and corporations coming out and saying, we're going to do better, we're going to do better. And, and we're listening. I think what's a little bit hard in the eyes of the consumer is um, the whole waiting game. Like they're like, well, why aren't these changes, you know, happening now? And, and there's many reasons, but I think something that would be really helpful. Um, and I know you and I talked about this a little bit before is, um, could you share or kind of like an estimate of what the timeline of publishing a book is? Because I know, you know, just because these conversations are happening now, doesn't mean like the book is going to come out, um, you know, in a month or, or whatever, like it, it is a cycle and it does um, take a while. And I know, you know, books that are being bought now maybe won't come out until next year, or like end of next year. So um, could you maybe talk us through the, an estimated timeline of, um, you know, the lifetime of, of a book. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say it's probably safe to assume that if a book gets acquired today, that I would say it would take maybe a year to a year and a half to, you know, actually, um, bring it to the stores. Um, and it takes from everything, you know, once the editor gets the submission in, and uh, this is something that I didn't really understand, um, but it is such a fast paced uh, process for the editors. So, I mean, they're, it, I think part of the problem is too, is that they're, they aren't the only ones getting the submission, right? Like they are, the agent is submitting it to multiple houses, multiple imprints. Mm-hmm. And if you're not fast enough, then it, you know, like you've missed your opportunity there. And I think, um, you know, that's also a really important um, thing for that I, I didn't really understand. Um, so it starts there. And then from there, you know, you're kind of just kind of in this waiting game, right? So, um, you know, you're waiting for the edits, you're waiting kind of until it's kind of um, 
I guess, there to present in manuscript form. So from there, we have, um, you know, marketing meetings, publicity meetings, where we hear about the book. Um, and then you, well, this is how it works for me. Um, I get to basically put in a bid for the book that I'd like to market. So one of the books that I'm marketing next year um, is called Brood. Um, and that's coming out in March 2021. Um, but when I found out that I was marketing that book was at the end of March 2020. So you know, there was obviously a process before that of acquiring and making sure that it was at least like manuscript ready. And now that I am the marketer, um, you know, I'm going through these motions of constantly kind of changing what I want to do. Now I have about six and a half months until the book comes out. Um, you know, that six and a half books, is, it seems like a long time, but um, in reality, uh, it's not. Like, you know, I, I think I had a marketing plan in the beginning in, in March 2020, and now that uh, COVID has uh, continued, I had to, I've completely changed what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're granted this year before the book comes out, and it does really feel like a long time to the consumer. Um, but as the marketer, it feels like a blink of an eye and, you know, the book is at my doorstep. Um, so I would say definitely about a year and year and a half. And then also there are other, there are other parts of publishing, you know, like library marketing, academic marketing, sales, uh, obviously editorial publicity, and mm -hmm. then there's less marketing. So there's so many factors. There's so many players that have to each get their, um, you know, thing right when it comes to their time, you know, production, designing the cover. Um, and, you know, that's why it kind of takes so long. And especially during COVID where things, you know, are a little bit slower. There was a New York Times article um, quite recently about um, printing um, and publishing, you know, like fearing that's going to fall behind because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So there are definitely more factors now than I think in the past um, when it comes to publishing a book. Um, but yeah, just to give a little snapshot, I'm sure that I'm missing pieces um, because this is the first time I've ever worked in a division, in an imprint. And um, I think us also like another con of me not being in the, in the office is uh, you kind of get to see the book come to life in the office, right? Like it passes by you um, from, you know, bound manuscripts to galleys to ARCs. Um, and now the, that process is kind of uh, taken away um, because of the situation we're in. So I'm hoping that by next year, I can truly see, um, you know, what it's like in the office for a book to be um, from acquisition to, um, when I, when I post the first finished photo on social media. But, yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So it's, I mean, you know, it's cool to know that you're, you're working on stuff that's coming out next year. I think that's very exciting. Um, so I know we, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff, but I definitely want to, um, talk about your favorite books. Cause I know you are of course a reader, but what are some type of genres that you, um, gravitate towards? I am definitely a big literary fiction fan. Um, I think for me, sometimes it is less about the plot, more about like the words that are actually coming through, which I think is a stereotype that comes with literary fiction. <laughs> um, and surprisingly, I think 
kind of historical fiction slash family sagas um i'm actually a big fan of and i i think it took me a little while to really realize that um and i would say the book that probably really brought that um to life is homegoing um you know like you're going through seven or eight generations of a family um throughout that book and i and i think it's probably changed my perception of what i think of as a literary family saga mm-hmm. um so that those are kind of the books that I gravitate towards. Yeah. Um, and those are the books that I definitely uh, really do like to work on. And I also really do like romance. I think some people really underplay it. And I'm just like, you're sleeping on romance because some there are just so many like, like witty and just like so steamy moments. It's like, I could never get this from another genre, you know, like sometimes it's exactly what I need. Um, so I would say romance, literary fiction, and somewhere in the realm of historical fiction and family saga. Yeah, I am, listen, I am right there with you for romance. I was sleeping on it until um, one of my friends was like, just, you know, let's, you know, give this a try. And and now I'm like, yes, I'm all about it. I have so many romance books. Um, but what are you reading for Latinx Heritage Month, which is this month? That's a great question. Um, I'm actually picking up a few things um, and I'm hoping, um, you know, we'll really kind of break through. There's a new book coming out um, by our, my friends over at Vintage called Finding Latinx um, by Paola Ramos. And she is um, Jorge Ramos's daughter, who is like this. Oh, like I love him. Yeah. Have you read his book, Take a Stand? No, I have not. But it's so good. Oh my God. (laughs) I will definitely put that on my list. But Finding Latinx is um, about the term Latinx. And, you know, she goes through and kind of um, uncovers, you know, where we even came from this term, like why it is so controversial um, and kind of about different experiences like within the Latinx community. So that's something that I'm hoping to read. It comes out in later October, um, but... Um, that is something, you know, that's definitely on my list and I would consider, you know, as like a pre-order purchase um, Mm -hmm. for Latinx Heritage Month. And I think I also want to dive into some classics, um, you know, like uh, Love in the Time of Colera. And um, I was also thinking about picking up um, Bodega Dreams by Ernesto Quinones, who I was um, at the uh, last Latinx Heritage month event that we threw last year and he's just like so um charismatic and like just so like w- open and willing to have a conversation um he was and- such a great speaker I, I happened to be in new york on vacation for that event and i went and i we didn't get to meet but i i remember you speaking and then he yeah he was great i like immediately added um was it taina to mm-hmm to my um like amazon cart or something i still have not read it shame on me um but yeah he was a great speaker and just hearing him speak i was like i am buying your book immediately but yeah bodega dreams is also one that's that's on my list for sure yeah and i i just i've never read it um i've read uh i'm also pretty bad i only read like half of diana not because i didn't like it but just because like just the flurry of um other books constantly being thrown my way but um I think also during this time in a, in a book that I just like truly, truly so loved is like Water for Chocolate. Um, and I, 
I just think, you know, maybe it was part of the magical realism, maybe because like it is kind of a shorter book and it is, you know, easy to um, kind of get through. Um, you know, sometimes I do find myself revisiting it just because I just love the story. I don't know what it is, what, what about it? It just, I feel like I connect, can connect with it on so many levels. And um, so I would say those are definitely the ones that I'm looking to pick up this month. Um, but I'm always kind of browsing for my next um, Latinx read. I just bought um, You Had Me at Ola. Um, and I've heard like great things about the book. So, so great. I loved yeah. it. I'm hoping to um, kind of cram that in there as well. I think also like I'm also constantly like reading for work. So mm -hmm. it's like trying to find a balance of, you know, like reading for pleasure and then like reading for work. Um, so those are my hopefuls. Hopefully I can get through at least like two or three, but we'll see, you know, where the month takes me. Yeah, no, that's totally, totally valid of having to, you know, read for work and then, you know, read uh, for pleasure. But last question, and I know this is very hard as a reader, but what is one of your favorite books that you always recommend to someone? Um, I would say that is definitely Sabrina and Corina. Um, it's by Callie Fajardo Ensign. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Um, it's out by One World. It's a collection of short stories um, that takes you through, um, I would say, maybe the Midwest. I can't remember the exact placement, but um, she... Okay, wait. Actually, it's like in the Colorado area. She is from... Colorado. Um, so uh, it's takes you through all these different lives and all these different stories and somehow they're interconnected with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and she is um, also uh, Latinx. I believe she's Mexican. Um, I'm not necessarily sure. Um, but she is definitely Latinx. And um, this, I just remember like crying, like just so many times, like when I would read it, just like on my commute home from work, because it just is so well written to me. And I think that anytime I recommend it to someone, I just am like, be warned because I, I am just waiting for her next book to come out. And like, you know, it's just like about the waiting and just her writing and the way she speaks and the way she presents herself just like as a person, just, um, you know, on social media, it's it just, she is so inspiring to me. Um, and that book truly just made me feel so seen um, mm -hmm. in a way that I, I was having a really hard time um, really seeing myself uh, in Latinx literature. And, and that is definitely probably one of my top recommendations of all time. But I will also give a small little shout out to Homegoing um, because that book just, I think, transformed me as a person, just mm -hmm. being able to just appreciate like true storytelling um, and just being able to have insight into something that I am aware of, uh, you know, like the history of slavery, but just, just having it be presented in that way of just like this, this generational thing. Um, and, you know, like how, you know, one thing that happens to your ancestors can affect your whole life. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, I just, absolutely adore those two. Um, those, those are always the ones I always go back to. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time 
um, to chat with me and to share your stories and, you know, to share more about Ecuador, which I think is, is a country that that's unfortunately and often overlooked. So I hope more people learn about it and add it to their travel list um, and to share your, your books, because I know I always love to talk about books with you. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really a lot of fun. Um, and I hope, you know, if anyone ever has any questions, um, you know, I, I'm always open to talking about publishing or just like my experience or any tips or advice. So I just want to put that PSA out there. Thanks for joining us today. Latinx Like Me is executive produced and hosted by me, Emma Cardenas. Remember to subscribe and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And please leave a review. It's a great way to help us grow and show your support. Feel free to reach out on Instagram at latinxlikeme or via our website, latinxlikemepodcast.com if you would like to nominate someone to be featured or just want to say hi. See you next time.